I think the industry as a whole, and you see it now in COVID-19, everybody I talk to almost is full of praise. The industry is really delivering and walking the talk and uh, has this sense of social responsibility. The pharmaceutical industry does not set its priorities according to what necessarily what the global public health priorities are. Switzerland is the home of some of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies. They've developed drugs for illnesses like malaria, depression, and breast cancer. Some of their discoveries, like LSD and Valium, have even inspired songs and novels. But when it comes to COVID vaccines, the Swiss pharma giants are not part of the discussion. How did two of the world's biggest pharma companies miss out? Or did they? And what will COVID mean for their role in future pandemics? I'm Susan Masika, and this is The Swiss Connection. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Jessica Davis-Plus. She reports a lot on the Swiss pharma sector. So Jessica, your work often takes you to Basel, up in northeast Switzerland, to talk with people in the pharma industry. I do go to Basel pretty often. It seems that all roads of the Swiss pharma industry seem to run through Basel. Both Novartis and Roche are based there, plus hundreds of other smaller biotechs, incubators, and suppliers. Last time I went there to meet with some people at Novartis and the Basel Area Investment Promotion Association to understand how Novartis is opening up its campus to startups. I arrived extra early just to be on the safe side, but the place was empty. No visitors and hardly any employees because Novartis had just announced that it was extending its pandemic policy and allowing people to work from anywhere. And that means a lot of empty office space. I did a little math, and together, Novartis and Roche employ about 25,000 people in Switzerland alone. And around the world, they have 200,000 employees. Now that's more than the whole population of Oxford in England, or Providence, Rhode Island. Based on revenue, both companies are among the top five pharma companies. And if you could take another statistic here, about 10% of people in the world take a Novartis medicine. But where have these companies been in the pandemic? There's been a lot of talk about Pfizer and AstraZeneca, and then, of course, the smaller biotechs like Moderna and BioNTech, but not Roche and Novartis. This is a good question and one that many people in Switzerland are asking. In the big debate on COVID vaccines, why isn't the Swiss pharma industry leading? It's a legitimate question, isn't it? Switzerland is pharma country. It gave birth to some of the biggest pharmaceutical companies. Novartis and Roche come to mind, name but a few. How is it that this industry, so innovative, so dynamic, so dominant, has not been able or willing to develop a vaccine against COVID? What lessons can be learned from this lack of Swiss leadership in this area for future pandemics? That was from a radio program in March of this year, at a time when there's a lot of frustration that vaccines aren't coming fast enough in Switzerland. There's a lot of, if only there was a Swiss company developing a vaccine. So where are they? Why aren't they more involved in developing COVID vaccines? First, I should say that both Roche and Novartis have been involved in the pandemic response. Roche was one of the first companies to develop COVID tests, and both Roche and Novartis have been looking at whether existing drugs could be used as treatments against COVID. Novartis and Roche are also partnering with smaller biotechs on potential treatments. The story is different on vaccines, though. Swiss firm Lanza is involved in manufacturing the Moderna vaccine, but they didn't develop or discover it or 
really, you know, develop the technology behind it. Now, Roche has never been in the vaccine business, but Novartis certainly was. Novartis Vaccines and Diagnostics is a leading, leading global vaccine manufacturer headquartered in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Along with our predecessor companies, we have been a leader in the development and supply of influenza vaccines to the United States for over 25 years. That was the CEO of Novartis, Vas Naramsan, speaking at a U.S. congressional hearing in 2009 when he was the head of Novartis's U.S. vaccine division. Yeah, the business looked promising back then. There was this great graph that Novartis had predicting the vaccine market growing from $10 billion in 2007 to $40 billion in 2020. It was working on vaccine technology against influenza, meningitis. In 2007, Novartis wasn't huge, but it was still the fifth largest vaccine maker in the world after it bought a vaccine company in California. Then came a major turning point. But first, the latest on the swine flu epidemic, which the CDC said today has spread widely and cannot be contained. The outbreak that began in Mexico is now suspected to have reached New York City. Other cases are reported from Kansas to California. Now, during the swine flu outbreak, countries went crazy buying up swine flu vaccines from companies like Novartis, which invested big in boosting production and new vaccine technologies. But then the pandemic tapered off and countries started cutting orders. Vaccine sales after 2010 just plummeted. By 2014, the company's vaccine division only accounted for 3% of sales, so they decided to sell it. Yeah, it was operating at a loss for a number of years. Their annual report in 2014 said that while it was an attractive business, and I quote, it lacked the innovation power and commercial scale to compete effectively. I spoke to Thomas Cuny, who now leads the International Pharmaceutical Federation and was the head of the Swiss Industry Association Interpharma when Novartis sold off the business. The Novartis decision to sell its vaccines business years ago, I think, was an understandable, justifiable one because they simply didn't have the critical size uh, compared to the competitors and they focused with success uh, on other areas where they are leaders. I think one of the important elements of industry is uh, success, that you need to be where you know you can be one of the top three or top five at least. We should point out here that Novartis is still involved in making COVID vaccines. They recently signed a couple of deals to help produce the vaccines from Pfizer-BioNTech as well as CureVac. That's true. I think all of the pharma companies are under pressure at this point, from the public, government, even their own employees, to show that they aren't just sitting on the sidelines. And this is both from a financial perspective, but also from a moral one. If you remember back to February last year, though, the biggest pharma companies weren't the ones jumping up and down to get involved in COVID vaccines. It was the smaller biotechs. Novartis may have been out of the race, but even the big vaccine makers like Sanofi and GSK were reluctant, and there was almost no company investing in coronaviruses before the pandemic. At the time, I called Ellen Etun, who is a Dutch public health expert. She worked at Doctors Without Borders for many years. She had written this article with a provocative headline last February, Coronavirus, the latest problem big pharma won't solve. I asked her why companies weren't jumping at the chance to get involved in vaccines. The pharmaceutical industry does not set its priorities according to what, to necessarily what the global public health priorities are. Um, I think there was no denying at the time of the Ebola outbreak, promising vaccine candidates had been sitting on a shelf for more than a decade. And you know, from a public health perspective, 
when you look at that, you think, how on earth is that even possible? You know, how come, how come this was, this this this, this could happen? <clears throat> on the other hand, um, companies uh, need to make profits, and their shareholders are used to generous awards for their investments, and that is how companies set their set their priorities. And these things do not uh, do not often not converge. We've seen that with Ebola and we also now see that with Corona where companies are saying this is too high risk. It is. It costs a lot of money to develop a vaccine and a vaccine like this that would have to be available to everyone on the planet basically would have to be very, very cheap. Otherwise you cannot have universal access to such, such a vaccine. Well, as soon as you use the word cheap, um, companies will walk, will walk away. Of course, back when you talked to her over a year ago, we didn't know whether this was going to be another swine flu and fade away. But that's clearly not the case as we sit here with our masks. That's fair. I mean, companies have been burned by vaccines against infectious disease outbreaks in the past. I just mentioned swine flu, but there's also SARS, MERS, dengue fever, Ebola epidemics that have run their course before vaccines could even get on the market. So they just sit on the shelf. Plus, vaccine development is risky stuff. You're testing them on healthy people, for one thing. Also, they take a lot of time and money to develop, yet they have to be available to everyone. So as Ellen said, they've got to be cheap. This is echoed by Bernard Pecoul from the Drugs for Neglected Diseases organization, which was specifically set up to channel funding into research for diseases often found in poorer parts of the world that honestly aren't that interesting for companies. But the big concern is that a large number of, uh, I would say, big pharma, if to be simple, uh, have abandoned the field of infectious disease. So I think it's a big concern for us because uh, we don't think that it's the end of infectious disease. We have uh, very few pharma today that has, has a still a large department of infectious diseases because they consider it's not profitable enough. The same, though, could be said about other areas, like antibiotics. A lot of companies, including Novartis, have pulled out of new research on antibiotics because they just don't see money in it. There's no viable market. There's no sustainability. Uh, we need new antibiotics. And COVID-19 has shown us the terrible impact on health, but also economically, of a pandemic. Now, antimicrobial resistance is the pandemic, which is already with us, growing. If they aren't investing in antibiotics and coronaviruses, what are they focusing on? A lot of companies, including Novartis and Roche, are focused on what they call personalized medicine, which is really just a way to say a medicine tailored or customized to someone's specific genetic makeup or risk profile. So in many ways, they are exactly the opposite of vaccines for the masses. They are medicines for a specific individual. The diseases where companies are, are mostly interested in is cancer today, because that's where the big money can be made. If you look at the, like, the cost of cancer treatment, the pricing of cancer treatment is absolutely through the roof. And that's where a lot of their R&D efforts go into. You almost see an overinvestment in certain areas because, you know, they're all, they're all going after the jackpot. And, and again, that's what I said at the onset. If you set priorities according to public health needs, they, they would be very different than when you set them according to commercial objectives. Novartis actually has the most expensive therapy on the market, a gene therapy priced at $2.1 million that promises to cure young children of a serious hereditary disease with a one-time injection. Over $2 million for one shot. 
That raises some difficult questions. I mean, who can say that curing cancer or a rare childhood disease is more or less important than COVID-19? How do you decide? Who even has the authority to decide? It's true. Novartis is developing innovative treatments for many diseases, not just cancer, but some of which most people have never heard of, like leishmaniasis, I think that's how it's pronounced, actually. Someone from Novartis told me these may at times not be the biggest public health threats or needs at this very moment, but people are still dying of them. He added that the company needs to focus on where they can really make a difference. I'd imagine that COVID would be a kick in the pants for the industry, though. I mean, given where we are right now, it seems like they'd all see the value in investing in infectious diseases and vaccines. Yes and no. The COVID pandemic is pretty unusual in its scale and impact. At least, let's hope. I'm not sure investors are necessarily interested in cheap medicines like vaccines in normal times. I think investors are most interested in the technology or science behind the vaccines and the promise it holds against other diseases. I was talking to someone at GAM Asset Management in Zurich, which has a health investment fund that is always looking out for the next big innovation in healthcare. The fund invests in Novartis, and I asked about the company not being active in COVID vaccines. This is Jenna Danes. If you think about it, the COVID vaccine from uh, Moderna and BioNTech, those are genetic medicines. So that's only one step away from, from gene therapy. And they were mm-hmm. investigating those, um, some in oncology indications and, and some in infectious diseases. And now we're seeing them, you know, deliver to a huge swath of the population. Every mm-hmm. company can't do everything. So we don't necessarily need every pharma company to do oncology and autoimmune and cardiology and infectious disease, right? But there's a lot of different ways of looking at access to medicine. And there's a lot of different gaps. Um, and I don't think a company has to address every single gap at once, to still be doing something worthwhile. But we still need companies to invest in infectious diseases, ideally before the next pandemic. That's the big dilemma. But the drug companies should regard the public health and, in fact, the public service function that they, that they fulfill or should fulfill take much more seriously. The industry, of course, is structured in such a way that Um, responding to shareholder needs is important than responding to public health needs. And that is a problem. That's where what what people sometimes refer to as the market failure. I'm not really sure it's a market failure. It's more that is how the market works. But the way to correct that, of course, is having good public policies and public financing and put conditions on that financing. So it sounds like she's suggesting that governments step in. That's what we've seen with COVID. The U.S., EU, and other governments invested big in the research and production of these vaccines, either directly or by buying doses in advance, in a sense giving companies money to further develop them. I can imagine that having taxpayers funding pharma companies, who then make a lot of money selling the vaccines, raises some very tricky ethical questions. Definitely. And I spoke to Patrick Durish, who is the head of health policy advocacy for the watchdog NGO Public Eye about this. Pharmaceutical companies have received massive public funding to expand their capacity. I mean, governments have really poured in billions of francs into that. And uh, this raises even more the question of private property, uh, or which is de facto what you're doing when you, when, when you patent and monopolize it, uh, versus a, uh, a health common or a common good. 
he makes an interesting analogy here. He said that pharmaceutical companies are important actors, but... But they shouldn't be in the driver's seat, and they are in the driver's seat. And that's what's bothering me. And, and, the, uh, and the governments let them be in the driver's seat and give them the keys and the money and, and the fuel and everything. So uh, they should be the one deciding about the fate of people. They should be the one deciding who gets it, who, get, who doesn't get it. They shouldn't be the, the one deciding at what cost they would sell it. He sounds really cautious about giving companies too many incentives. From a public health perspective, you want companies to keep making medicines that we need, but you don't want to give them too many incentives, or as he puts it, fuel, without any strings attached. That's exactly it, Susan. And unfortunately, in a pandemic situation, or in any medical emergency when people or countries are at their most vulnerable, it can be difficult to do that. One thing public health advocates like Patrick and Ellen want is for the world not to forget COVID, to keep investing in research in diseases or viruses, even the ones that aren't commercially attractive now, so that we are ready. And I think one of the public health measures you can have is basically ensure that even once a crisis is over, that you have sufficient incentives to uh, to continue researching about it. And not just saying, okay, it's over, now... Uh, We're waiting for the next one. There are signs from industry that they will continue to be a part of this. Thomas Cuny indicated that the industry won't forget this. One of the overall lessons all of us have to learn, the importance of viral research. And I think there will be more collaboration, uh, be it in the context of public-private partnerships, or be it in what companies are doing, in, uh, in research on viral uh, infections, because pandemics, uh, this unfortunately will not be the last pandemic. I'm sure that the Swiss companies will be very much involved in that. The challenge of how to reconcile innovation and access isn't going away. I think, though, that the pandemic will cause us to take a hard look at these companies and ask what we as society really want or need from them gives us a lot to think about, as so many of us are waiting to get vaccinated. Thanks for bringing us this story, Jessica. Thank you. You can read more about this story and the pharma sector in general on our website at swissinfo.ch. The Swiss Connection podcast is a Swiss Info production. Do you like what you hear? Then please tell your friends and subscribe to us if you haven't already. The reporting for this episode was by Jessica Davis Plus. Our music, including the theme, is composed by Michele Andina. Our studio engineer in Bern is Danny Wheeler. I'm Susan Masika. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Imogen Folks from Swiss Info's Inside Geneva podcast. On February 24th, 2022, Russia attacked Ukraine. The invasion caused Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II. And during the year-long conflict, 
tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people, soldiers and civilians, have been killed. Over the past year, a number of episodes of Inside Geneva have looked at the heavy humanitarian toll of the war and its wider implications for the world. We've been joined by historians and international human rights experts to ask about the background to the invasion. We've talked to major UN aid agencies about how the war in Ukraine is impacting other humanitarian crises. And we've asked if sanctions or war crimes investigations can stop or at least limit this conflict. If you're particularly concerned by the war in Ukraine, do listen to these episodes. You can find Inside Geneva, free to listen, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all your usual podcast apps.